Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Michael Yonan, Alan Templeton Endowed Chair in the History of European Art and Professor at the University of California, Davis. In this episode, we discuss decorative art in the Rococo period and material culture theory in the 18th century. Additionally, we talk broadly about art history, its methodologies, and how students should go about analyzing a piece of art. Professor Yonan emphasizes the importance of increasing accessibility in art appreciation and how students can go about finding a personal connection with art and the world around them. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Michael Yonan. Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How'd you get to Davis and what got you interested in art history? Yeah, well, uh, I'll start with the, the Davis part first. I'm, I'm a relatively new uh, arrival at uh, the university. I was hired in 2020. And the immediate reason for my hire was that a, a person named Alan Templeton funded the position that I have, which is an endowed chair in uh, European art. And so that's the immediate reason why I came here. There wasn't someone in this area actually before uh, uh, he did that. And then my story really goes back all the way to um, you know my childhood and, and being exposed to the arts uh, in school and in uh, books and through museums. I grew up in the Chicago area and had many childhood trips to the Art Institute of Chicago, which is a great American mm-hmm. museum. And um, slowly kind of discovered that the arts existed through those routes. I uh, wanted to make the point that I don't come from a family that is particularly involved in the arts. Uh, I have pretty, I'm a, a the child of immigrants. And my parents, my mother was born in Greece. My father was born in Iraq. And I had a fairly typical American immigrant experience of you're going to go to school and get a really high paying job and become a doctor maybe and, you know, uh, uh, sort of validate the family in all sorts of ways. Um, but I was too seduced by the arts to go that route. So I found my own way through life and I really discovered art on my own. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What were some of your favorite museums besides that or shows that you saw that stand out to you? Wow. So I remember going, uh, it's a relatively early in my museum going experience and seeing an exhibition devoted to um, the art of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, who was a major Turkish Ottoman leader. And the Art Institute of Chicago had a big show devoted to that person historically Mm -hmm. and the art connected to him. And I remember going and just being blown away by some of the things in the collection, uh, in, in the exhibition that were on display then. And then when I got the chance to travel a little bit, I went to other museums as well and got the chance to go to Europe, for example. And I remember my first trip to the uh, Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna, mm. where I, le- I later ended up doing um, some research, just blew my mind. I mean, such amazing things and beautiful things to look at. But also for me, they were interesting objects, not ju- just because they were pretty, but because they gave insight into this sort of world of the past and of other cultures that I otherwise didn't mm-hmm. have a lot of opportunity to connect to. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I haven't thought about that exhibition yeah. in a while. It's a good question. Do you have a favorite museum now? 
So I was, I literally was just in Chicago last week to give a lecture and had the opportunity to go back to the Art Institute of Chicago for, uh, the, for the first time in several years. And that will, I think, always be my favorite yeah. museum just because, it, you know, I was, I was literally one of the kids on the school bus being brought to the museum in second grade to look at the pictures. And I remember some of those paintings from my childhood. So it's like, I've been looking at some of those works of art for a very long time. And so I think that will always be the default I'm favorite museum. It's a beautiful collection. Yeah. So yeah. my sister lives out there and we've been most times that I'm there. Pretty stunning. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Did you face any pushback for deciding to carve your own path and pursue the arts? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely did. Um, you know, it's it's it was a difficult thing for me to tell my parents that I wanted to do this with my life and career uh, because they had sort of a different idea of what my life would be like. Um, my father came around pretty quickly when he realized that I actually could do this and was interested in doing this. My mother took a little longer. Uh, but I think when I realized that there was a way to sort of create a career where I could think about art professionally, that possibility was so appealing to me as a life choice that I was willing to take the risk, really, of maybe having things turn out badly in order to just have the possibility to do that with my life. And I've never regretted it, although it has not always been the easiest path to choose. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And then given that your job is all about thinking about art, is there ever any requirements to produce the art yourself or a similar thing? So that's an interesting question. Uh, depending on the university program, there are some programs that ask art history students to also take some courses in studio art. And uh, so students have that that sort of hands-on opportunity to make art themselves and learn a little bit about what that feels like and what's involved. I never had that experience. So I, I come at this really much more from the history side of art history, where uh, I was never asked to take an art course. And once I got to college, I sort of wasn't, you know, it was never sort of something that was put in front of me that I had to do. I took a lot of history. And so I came more to art through the history side of things. And that means that the techniques of art making are things I've had to sort of teach myself more on my own later in my life to fill in a little bit some of that experience that I had, that I didn't have, mm -hmm. and get a sense of what it's like to actually make things. Yeah. yeah. It's very interesting. And what do you think everyone can learn from studying art? Well, so I thought about this question a lot because... You know, art historians are very good at justifying our existence. The, you know, the typical university situation is not entirely sure why we're here. Like they kind of have maybe some loose idea of what an art historian should be doing at a university. Um, I, I think of this in terms of, you know, like what I say to my students in the, in the survey class that I offer here, which is that art is an opportunity to, first of all, learn about the past because a lot of the art we study is from previous moments in world history. It's an opportunity to engage with other cultures because you are looking at works of art that are from other parts of the globe or from societies that are very different from American society. But it's also an opportunity to learn about yourself 
because how you respond to a work of art is usually very telling with regard to kind of what you believe about the world and how you view the world. And there's a self-reflection quality to uh, engaging with art that I think can be really revealing to people. Like, why do I like this and not like that? Why does this seem really interesting to me, but this other thing over here does not? I think those are opportunities for people to kind of reflect a little bit on their priorities and their, their view of the world. So art history kind of enables all of those things to happen. And then when you study the art history and all of the different forms and mediums, how do you go about analyzing them and does it change by medium? It absolutely does. So one of the things that attracted me to art history was that unlike some academic disciplines that have a fairly like prescribed set of techniques that you use to engage in the scholarship, art history is kind of very all over the place. It's very flexible. And so you can kind of bring a lot of different perspectives to a work of art and you can approach it from a lot of different directions. And that to me was always very exciting because it meant that you were sort of figuring that out in the process of, um, of analyzing whatever work of art you're trying to study. For me, you always have to go back to the object itself. To me, that's the sort of the most important part of this is to make sure that you are are not just talking about the history and not just talking about the artist, but you're somehow talking actually about the object very closely. And the object needs to remain sort of at the center of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've developed, art history has developed techniques for helping people analyze things visually and also structures of interpretation so that you can say, well, here's what I think is going on here. And then now I can put that into this framework and see where that takes me. Um, it helps also in art history to be a good writer because mm-hmm. a lot of what we do is about argumentation. Mm-hmm. And so the more you can make the case that the way you look at a work of art is convincing, the easier it will be for people to sort of follow what you're doing. Definitely. Yeah. What are some of those arguments or like within research? What are you typically writing about? Yeah. So uh, that's a great question because I think every art historian is going to answer this very differently. So for me, I'm I'm trying to ask what this object tells us about history. And so I really think of it in terms of almost like this is an artifact of a different era. So I'm trying to take this object and use whatever we have that we can see in the object or we can determine is part of it mm-hmm. to squeeze out some sort of understanding of history that would otherwise not be available to us. And so for me, that dimension is what I'm trying to, when I ask questions of a work of art, it's typically in order to like, what is this thing telling us about the past? And, and I believe also that works of art tell us things that are very different from what you will find written in a novel or written down in the record of a historical event, uh, some document that artworks are often keys into the way people thought about the past that maybe no one thought to articulate because it was mm-hmm. too obvious at the time. And yet somehow it needs to be clarified and a work of art is a way to do that. And then when you're saying objects, are you talking about furniture or paintings or sculptures or? Yeah. So 
One of the in interesting things about art history is that, so when people think of art, they often think of paintings or like two-dimensional images that are hanging on a wall, but actually art history is a lot bigger than that. And so my area of specialization in my research is often in decorative arts, which are things like furniture. I've worked a lot on ceramics, um, you know, sculpture, things like that. And then a lot of art historians actually work on architecture. So there's a oh. lot. Yeah. So like architectural history is really very closely connected to art history. And so it can quickly get bigger than just, you know, famous paintings in a museum. It can become more about like the world that people are actually living in and the sorts of things that they encounter on a daily basis in their environments. Uh, so yeah, so I always try to make like a really strong case for art history being as big and as mm -hmm. broad a subject as possible. You know. And then do you ever look at objects that weren't created as art, but are still reflective of, of the time period? So, yes. And I, I am a really big believer that we should be doing more of that mm -hmm. because, you know, a famous painting by a well-known artist is really in some ways a fairly limited thing. Like it would have been seen by a certain number of people and have a connection to a you know, a sector of society probably, but not a huge sector at all. Whereas something like a table or, you know, a, a print or some other kind of work of art that maybe had more currency got around a little more might give insight into broader segments of society and might have been relevant to more people. So like, you know, I love art museums, but I also love history museums because somehow like that kind of object actually ends up a lot of times in history museums. And you'll sort of see like the spoons that people were using in 1750. You'll be like, wow, that's really, that's weird. That doesn't look like our spoon, right? It looks like a different kind of spoon. And it gives some sort of insight into how those people lived. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That increased insight come with another set of difficulties? Because I would imagine if you're studying a painting from one artist, you have a degree of background. Yeah. Of where they were coming from. Whereas for a vastly produced table, like you, you lose a lot of that. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's totally true, which, you know, one of the reasons people work on famous artists is because we know a lot about them, mm -hmm. right? So a Van Gogh painting, like we have a lot of information we can bring to a Van Gogh painting to help us understand what we're looking at. If you find an old spoon, like I used before, I mean, you don't, maybe don't know who made it. Maybe you can figure out who made it, you know, I mean, where did it come from? So you don't have sometimes the names associated with that kind of study. And yet that to me is actually sort of appealing because it suggests that it's coming from maybe some sort of, I don't know, like it's coming from a place of, of being more common and that that has the potential to reveal some parts of the past that I, I think we need to sort of think about a little more. Yeah. You know? And then when you talk about uncovering parts of the past, I feel like in art, there's often a lot of ambiguity. Yeah. Have you developed a mental model of how you like to work through some of that? Yeah. I, so I, I am really interested in ambiguity. So it's great that you brought that up. That term is very interesting to me because I think that uh, a lot of art history was taught to me, at least in my generation as being more about confirming what things meant. 
And like, this means this, and you have to you know, know what you're looking at in the work of art. So you can say that this thing means that, and this other, the dog means this, and then the light means that, you know, and, and, and that that was, I think how a lot of art historians were trained. And yet, I don't know if we really look at the world that way. Like, I don't think we do. I think there are, there are layers of meaning to everything and ambiguity is how we often experience the world. Like we kind of understand what we're going through, but then sometimes we don't and we maybe half understand it. You know, there's that level of never quite being able to pin down exactly what some things we encounter mean. And I've been attracted to art that I think allows us to think about that a little bit mm -hmm. and to sort of talk a little bit about the possibilities of understanding the world rather than just confirming, well, okay, the dog means fidelity sure. and the light refers to God or something like that. Yeah. That, that to me is a, is a more, I don't know. That's not really how we live. That's not yeah. how we experience the world. And, and then in the research process, is it harder to be published if you're talking about possibilities versus kind of more in a certain tone? That's probably true. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. probably true. I think because I was, um, interested in those sorts of questions. I would say the the beginning of my career got off to a start. I mean, it got off to a fine start, but like I was definitely, you know, sometimes working against what people expected mm -hmm. when I tried to publish my ideas because they're like, well, you haven't confirmed that this is what you're trying to, you know, say it is. And I often thought, well, I don't really want to confirm that, right? Like I want to open up that possibility historically through the object, but I don't necessarily want to close down what we think this work of art can mean. Mm -hmm. Because actually, you know, I think about this also in terms of teaching, I, you know, I sort of present what I think these works of art are about to our students, but I also try to give the students a space where they can kind of imagine the work of art becoming something that they want it to mean. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of find the ways to sort of create those spaces while also recognizing that the work of art can't just mean anything, right? Like yeah. there's a certain set of historical conditions that it comes from, but you know, uh, for a student who is unfamiliar with art, that's often a very liberating feeling. Like yeah. they'll think, oh, I can sort of bring my own imagination a little bit to this. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely yeah. you can. Good for you, actually, if that's yeah. what you want to do. That's a great, great story. Yeah. Is that ambiguity accepted? I think it's, it's, it depends on probably a little bit on the community and it depends on the kind of art, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's certain kinds of art that are more about that than others. Uh, and so, um, I, it probably depends on who you're trying to convince. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then going into some of your work more directly, can you talk to us about ornamental art? Sure. So, uh, I love heavily decorated art, at least to study. Um, I like, I like the art I study tends to be very, very heavily decorated. So I do a lot of work on Rococo art, which is an 18th century European mode of decor and it is to to our eyes today extremely heavily decorated and most students when they first see it are usually like you know it's i don't want to even start to think about this um but i'm attracted to that kind of art because i think it's i think it's beautiful i'm not sure i would like my living room to be decorated <laughs> like that but it's very beautiful to look at and then it's it's interesting to think about more than anything and um it's difficult for us today 
to understand a world that liked things to be decorated that much. Could you maybe try to w- talk through a little I bit? I will. Of okay, perfect. Yeah. yeah, I'd be happy to because we, you know, we today look at the past from the other side of modernity, right? And the modernism and the development of modern culture and then of course modern art as part of that. And there's been a real push through modernism to think of everything in terms of efficiency and streamlining and kind of paring everything around you down to the bare essentials and having everything be functional, right? I often think of Ikea, like you go to Ikea, right? I taught a course here at UC Davis on Ikea, actually, (laughs) which is a great sort of like, it's a design area that everyone is familiar with. And Ikea really makes this point in their advertising that they're all about like, you know, making this simpler way of living with a streamlining of the furniture and everything is, you know, serves a function and all of that. And you go back into the past and they just, you know, the pre-modern world didn't think like that at all, right? So decoration was actually really important and it was an essential part of how of how a work of art or a decorated space or a building functioned. And so we have to sort of get out of this modern way of viewing ornament as this extra thing that doesn't need to be there and try to think more like how people thought in the past where the ornament was actually this really important place in a work of art and try to recreate a little bit the mindset that people brought to that that kind of design because if we don't we're always going to misunderstand it mm-hmm. you know um yeah and exactly why i'm attracted to ornamental art i'm not sure i can tell you why i just something about it is very interesting to me mm-hmm. and i don't know it's maybe because it's so different from how we think of aesthetics today maybe that difference is appealing to me yeah could you maybe describe what the ornament would be say take a mirror yeah like we're very used to a mirror being 95% mirror and like a yes. thin little border. You bet. What would a like a Rococo mirror look like? Sure. So, yeah, because if you imagine a mirror that you could, well, an Ikea mirror, right? You go and the mirror is really what you're, you're paying for. And there will be usually a little simple frame around that mirror that is like a piece of wood or plastic or something. And it's usually pretty small. You know, like a Rococo mirror, you would have the mirror, but then there would be this elaborate, you know, sort of um, the frame would be made of these elaborate curves and shapes. And those curves are these kind of fragmented forms that kind of blend into each other in various ways. Some of those curves are going to look a little bit like leaves. Some of them are going to look a little bit like water. Some of them might look just like sort of abstracted shapes, but they all kind of are like morphing in and out of each other in unusual ways. And they will be a big part of how that mirror works because they're actually a prominent part of the mirror's construction. And they're acting to kind of decorate what you see in the mirror, which is you, your reflection, but they're also connecting to you in various ways through what they represent and kind of engaging your mind in a way that a simple flat Ikea mirror is not going to do. And so part of what attracts me to Rococo actually is that the forms are based in these kind of natural forms, like, like rocks and leaves and things. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And could you talk about 
I guess briefly on the time frame that Rococo yeah. took place and kind of the conditions that led up to its creation. Yeah, sure. I should have said something about this before. So it's 18th century European. It it comes into existence in the years after uh, Louis the Fourteenth of France, the famous Sun King of France, the guy who built Versailles into what it is today. And he dies at a certain point, 1715, in the early 18th century. And at his death, there's this kind of loosening of sort of design ideas in France during that time. And to be very simplistic here, in that process of loosening the state's hold on what happened to the arts, the Rococo kind of comes out of that. It's based in garden design, actually. It's based in like, you know, the sorts of things that people would have had in um, like rock formations in their gardens or fountains, things like that. And Rococo is kind of an elaboration of that language being used in other uh, areas as well. So it sort of starts circa 1720 and it goes on depending on where you're looking at until 18, 1780, something like that. Yeah. And yeah. was a lot of the art mainly held by the aristocracy or was it something that the middle class and lower classes also experienced? Oh, it's such a great question because the way art, the way it's taught sort of leads people to think that it is just exclusively an elite mode of decoration, but actually it wasn't. And something I've been trying to really push in, in some of my work is this idea that actually lots of people engage with Rococo design. We just don't talk about them as much in art history because we talk, we talk a lot about kings and princes and famous people and we do all of that. And sometimes we're not talking about these other people in the world. So you can go to any like little regional museum in Germany or Austria and see all of this Rococo furniture that would have been used by sort of middle class people. And it's not, you know, the highest quality, perhaps. Maybe it's made of local wood. Maybe it's painted sometimes a little bit crudely, but it's still using that formal language of Rococo. And yet we rarely ever talk about those things at all. So part of my mission is to say the Rococo was more egalitarian than we okay. let our students believe uh, yeah. about it, that it's not just an elite mode of decoration. Yeah. And then was it primarily in Eastern Europe or also throughout Western Europe? So it, it sort of has its origins in France with Italy as a kind of influencer, you might say. And then it kind of spreads around Europe uh, from there. And um, it, it's it's particularly prominent in Germany, and okay. that's the part of part of Europe that I'm sort of most focused on is sort of Central Europe and Northern Europe. Also, Germany has a real love of the Rococo, and so they kind of adopt it from the French, and they kind of explode it into this ever bigger and more elaborate thing, and it ends up becoming like the major style of German art in the 18th century. Um, but you see it all over. It's in Russia. It's in Portugal. Um, there are international outside of um, outside of Europe uh, manifestations of the Rococo. It can be found in in uh, North America. It can be found in East Asia. Mm -hmm. So it, it's 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 around. Yeah, yeah. And just out of curiosity, is there a distinct end point or transition point to the next like kind of movement? Yeah. So art history has traditionally said, well, the Rococo sort of runs its course and then it's followed by neoclassicism, which is this return to the ideals of classical Greek and Roman design. But actually the Rococo never really goes away. 
And that's actually it's a funny thing because it 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 supposedly ends, but then you keep finding revivals of it. Mm. And it still sort of is revived even today, right? Like there are these kind of weird moments where suddenly things are kind of Rococo. And when I teach my Rococo class here at UC Davis, we end with this discussion of revivals and references. And I'm always surprised at how I can find, you know, relatively recent pop figures, like musical figures often, who are kind of evoking that world of 18th century Europe in a photo shoot, for example. Okay. Right? Something like that. Does one come to mind? Ugh, you know, I'm terrible at pop culture. Like, who was it? Look, who was it? Was it? Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I can't do this off the top of my head because I showed the picture of her in my class, and yet I'm so out of it that I cannot remember. Yeah, if it comes up later, we can put it on the website. All right, sounds good. Because of course, the minute we're done, I'll be like, "Yes, it was was her." (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So. When we were reviewing, we saw one of your pieces talking about how the Rococo is not only a reflection of the time period, but also the viewer. How do you like talk about or think about that dynamic relationship? I'm very interested in that question because art history was taught to me very much as being about the artist communicating through the work of art to a relatively passive audience. That was sort of the the narrative that was sold to me when I was sort of first studying it. And the more I've studied it, the more I realized that the viewer is actually engaging with the work of art and creating the meanings of that work of art very much in conjunction with what the artist has done. And part of what I think attracted me to Rococo decoration is because it's very overtly trying to do that. It's sort of doing that in a very sort of direct, like it's it's really trying hard to engage the viewer and let the viewer feel like they can kind of start to understand what they're looking at. But it's not just Rococo. It's really every work of art is is it's 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 a moment where a maker and the society that that maker represents and a viewer are kind of coming together it's like an interface mm-hmm. and so the viewer actually has a lot of power in front of a work of art to sort of decide what it's going to be about and to create some of the meanings of the work of art and I try really hard to get students particularly to think about that because usually they're not kind of comfortable with that idea. They're like, well, I just want to know what the artist intended. And it's like, well, you know, like you can intend something too, right? Like you have have actually a lot of agency here in in deciding what this work of art is going to mean to you today. And it doesn't matter if that's not what the artist intended necessarily, right? Like it's the artist created this so that you could have an experience in front of it. And if you're having an experience, you're doing it right, right? And so it's not about you have to know what the artist specifically wanted. It's more that you have to bring something from your experience to the work of art and and let that kind of guide a little bit your your process of looking at it. So yeah, I think that's a really important part of a work of art that maybe doesn't get talked about enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I know some of our artist friends have even said, like, I don't care to explain this one to you. Yeah. Because <laughs> but from that standpoint of just it's meant to be what you want it. I don't want to put my view on that. Exactly. I've had artists say things like, um, you know, if I could explain this to you, I wouldn't have had to make 
the work bar. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like if, if it were possible to say two sentences that describe what I, what I mean here, I wouldn't have to make a sculpture. Yeah. yeah. And do you think that perspective of taking agency with your relationship with the art has benefits beyond art? Maybe just broadly to our relationship with materials? Totally. And, uh, uh, you know, so something that art history has done for me has made me much more aware of the material world that I live in than I think I would have been had I not studied this. Mm -hmm. So just being extremely aware of how the design and appearance and decoration of everything around us is is engaging us in all sorts of ways. And uh, so I think that that's one of the ways that art history can actually be relevant outside of the museum, right? Like, of course, we're interested in what's in the museum too, but you know, you don't have to know anything about famous European paintings. Everyone lives in an environment with designed things around you all the time. And those designed things are engaging with you visually and materially all the time. And art history really can sensitize people to that, right? You become aware that, you know, why does, you know, I always use my water bottle as an example. Why does this water bottle look the way it is? Why is it colored the way it is? Why does it have, I mean, function explains some of that, of that, but some of it is also aesthetics mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of marketing this object to a certain kind of person and creating a context for them to understand why this object is appealing. Those are all actually art history problems yeah. even though they may not seem like it they are actually art history problems it's very interesting yeah and i think nowadays it's becoming a little bit more mainstream especially in some of the scientific sense of these colors will like a room of that color will have this impact although right. it's probably slight there is some of that becoming a little bit more talked about and people are starting to see like wow if i wake up and like view some sunlight i will be a little bit more awake yes. throughout the day or or you paint your room this color and that'll help your mood stay mm -hmm. in you know calm whereas if you paint it this other color it's going to maybe have the opposite effect yeah. you'll occasionally read about like how they want to paint jails certain really? colors yeah like the this like they like want calm them? like uh, yeah i'm trying to think is it like is it like yellow that's the, a good color for jail cells because it keeps people <laughs> calm. I have to look, look this up. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. I mean, and, but those are questions that artists were thinking about as well. You yeah. know, they were, they were imagining often how the aesthetic effect of what they were creating would um, create certain kinds of responses in people. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely an art historical kind of problem. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about how Davis is structured as a school in relation oh. to that? Yeah, actually, so I'm a little bit of a Pollyanna about this. So, um, because I think Davis does a lot of things right in this regard. So, you know, there's the arts consortium, the sort of departments here that are are all involved in the arts, and we're all pretty closely connected to each other, which is a good thing. Um, Davis has a really strong studio art program. It's very well known. And that studio art program is sort of operating at a high level, which is a good thing. And then uh, we have the opportunity to teach classes that people in other areas of the university take. And so we actually are regularly teaching students from veterinary sciences and the ag departments and all of that. And I'm surprised at how often those students actually want art history. 
Yeah. yeah. You'd be surprised. Like we have, we have a very interesting problem here at UC Davis, which is that our art history classes are very in demand, mm -hmm. which is not maybe what you would have expected me to say, <laughs> but like our classes are routinely full to the brim because yeah. so many people want to take our classes. And I just think that there's something here where students who are in maybe more hard sciences or practical sorts of subjects somehow still recognize that the arts are relevant to what they're doing. Yeah. And so we, we, I hope can continue to kind of build off of that positive energy that we have with those other areas and, you know, find ways to make what we're doing interesting to them so that they have that chance, yeah. you know, have that chance. Yeah. No, I couldn't get into one of the classes before too. So <laughs> I've experienced that myself. Yeah. It's interesting. Like our classes are very, I mean, they, they routinely all fill yeah. every quarter. How do you interact with like the architecture on campus? How does it make you oh, feel? It's an interesting question. Yeah. So the architecture on campus, you know, it's, so I'm not from California. So that's mm -hmm. maybe the first thing I should <laughs> say here. So, uh, you know, coming from the Midwest, I'm used to a certain kind of red brick, pseudo gothic kind of you know uh, you know university aesthetic so the architecture here seems very functional to me and it seems very modern compared to universities that i'm familiar with from earlier moments in my life um i think it's a pretty campus it's been said to me that it lacks a really clear focal point, mm -hmm. right? And that's not me being critical. That's other people have noted that to me, you know, whereas other universities have like a, a, a thing that is sort of like, like Berkeley has that bell tower, yeah. right? And things like that. The closest we seem to have to that are the water towers, mm -hmm. right? Which are kind of great, but they're not really right in the middle of campus. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So I don't know if the, if the university were thinking about something to do, they could think about some sort of focal point. Yeah. You know, I've heard that when uh, the, the media people on campus are looking for things to photograph, that's actually a real problem here mm. because there's only so many times you can show the UC Davis water tower <laughs> before, you know, yeah. people have seen it. You know, I definitely think that South campus of like Robert Mondavi center, yeah. like that whole area is a lot better. The new, TLC is pretty nice, but I've always felt that it's pretty discombobulated. There's not a clear theme or style. Yeah. Uh, and like the functional pieces seem to be like a lot from like the seventies and that whole just yeah. and like bland era. And like, where's the heart of campus? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's, it's really articulated architecturally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That said, it's pretty, it's a pretty nice campus. It's yeah. actually really beautiful and I don't know. It works, right? Yeah. Like, it <laughs> yeah. And then stepping back out a little bit is what we just talked about. Does that fully encompass the uh, material culture theory, or are there more pieces to it that play into how we should look at it? Yeah. So I I became really interested in this idea of material culture because I I wanted precisely what you were asking about a minute ago, where you asked about you know can we connect art history to things that are outside of the realm of art. Uh, I became really interested in that question. I, I wanted to find ways to do that. And material culture, the the project of material culture in university settings seemed to me to be a really interesting place to do that. And it doesn't really come from art history. It comes more from anthropology. Mm -hmm. It's anthropology that sort of kind of coined that term and, and, and was using that term in rel relatively early to talk about um, what they're interested in. 
And I was able to sort of reach out to anthropology and kind of borrow a bunch of ideas from anthropology and try to make the case that art historians should maybe sometimes think a little bit more like anthropologists. By which I mean thinking not just in terms of how things look, how works of art look, or how tables look, or how water bottles look, but also thinking a little bit about what they're made of and how we understand that material dimension to them as being part of our experience of the world. And how much that changes historically and how much that affects people's sensory understanding of what's going on around them. You know, we live in the era of plastic. I mean, we are constantly surrounded by plastic. And you have to imagine a world in which no one had any, I, I mean, it didn't, you know, no one knew what plastic was, right? And, and to imagine that world is a little hard for us today because everything we have is, you know, coated with plastic, mm -hmm. right? Or is plastic, right? Yeah. So that material culture project out of anthropology, that was actually really influential in helping me kind of develop my own thinking yeah. for art history. And when you're talking about everything being covered by plastic, <laughs> like that seems to be pretty unanimous across a lot of the modern world. Yeah. Does the current society being so integrated across cultures cause any problems when you're looking at art and understanding where does this come from? What's truly influencing this piece? Oh, yeah. Sure. Sure. So, first of all, let me comment on the the sort of global plastic, right? So, <laughs> this is a really big issue because, of course, we talk about the environment and what that has, the effect that that has on the environment and on our bodies because we mm -hmm. all have plastic in our bodies at this point. Um, but, you know, the, the fact that plastic is maybe 100 years old, something like that, mm -hmm. like the, the Bakelite being one of the first, and that it is something that uh, is part of human experience across the globe. It's actually something that, that links people all over the planet is that they have a connection to plastic objects. It's one of the few things that we could say actually connects us to people in every imaginable culture. Mm -hmm. But if I understand your, your question, you're asking about sort of globalization and how that affects the arts. Mm -hmm. It's a big issue because I think globalization has had the effect of making art from around the world actually more like itself. Mm -hmm. So rather than thinking about kind of local contexts for art making, increasingly art is really kind of a global phenomenon. And yeah. so the art being made in one country is is sort of about what's going on in that country, but it's actually also about kind of the broader global conversation that's occurring. And you could probably say that that's had a bit of a flattening effect mm -hmm. on diversity in the arts. So I suspect that. So do you think we're homogenizing culture? That's a very firm <laughs> way of asking that question. <laughs> But I think, you know, if if I can maybe go out on a limb a little bit, yes, I, th I would say that. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember a pre-internet world. Mm -hmm. And the first time I went to do research in Austria as a graduate student, the internet had just sort of started to be a thing. Like we had email and we were really excited by email. And I remember going to Vienna and it just felt so different from mm. the United States. It felt like a completely different 
social setting and social structure and people looked different and they dressed differently and the music was different and everything was just constantly confronted with difference. And now you go, you know, to the remotest place and people kind of look like they do here and they're listening to some of the same music and they have the same technology in their hands that you have. And I don't know, there is a way in which it's all become a little bit more similar and mm -hmm. homogeneous. Yeah. So maybe I, I'm, I'm ducking that by answer, actually answering it and saying, yes, I agree that that's yeah. what's happening. And building off of that, where do you see the future of art going, especially in respect to medium use? Yeah, it's an interesting question to ask right now after the unleashing of artificial intelligence onto the world. Yeah. Right. And so this is something that we're all sort of following very carefully. So the old media are never going to die. They just, you know, I mean, so I'll put it to you this way. When photography was first invented and popularized in the 19th century, there were people who said, oh, well, no one's going to make paintings anymore mm. because we have this machine that will make a really accurate picture of how something looks. So why do we need to make a painting? And painting didn't go away. So I think that that's where we're going to be in the future. I think these old media are going to have a lot of people who still practice them and there will still be people who want to make ceramic pottery, for example. But I think that the value of those things is going to change and we're going to associate different ideas with them and we're going to sort of transform how we make images so that the technologies available to us will continue to be used, you know? And so, um, we may in, in 15 or 20 years, I don't know, be just doing everything with artificial intelligence tools, but there will still be someone out there making a painting with, you know, acrylic and a brush. There'll still be someone out there who probably is fetishizing that experience and saying, see, I'm doing it the way that they used to do it in the 20th century, right? I think that's real though, because a lot of people find the value in building with their own hands, painting that painting. And I think with the AI, you're starting, you're going to start to see more and more of like, oh, cool photo. Yeah. Like I can hop on and tell it to do the same thing. And yeah, I could tweak it a little bit and come up with something a little bit different. But I feel like that art form is so fleeting versus when you know yeah. someone took 40 days to sit down and meticulously paint this item or craft the sculpture. Absolutely. There's a reverence for that. I mean, we've all, whether you're interested in the arts or not, all had the experience of seeing something made by someone with that kind of care that you're describing. And it's always a little awe-inspiring to think, wow, you know, that person carved that table out of whatever and, and made this thing with their own hands because there's a way in which we find that to be, I mean, we sort of think of that as an impressive act to be able mm -hmm. to do that. Even something as simple as someone making a really complicated dinner, which is not simple, yeah. <laughs> right? You're like, wow, look, I can't believe you did this, right? Um, yeah. So, but I also want to say artificial intelligence is interesting because it, it's like artificial has at its core the idea of art. And mm -hmm. so it is something that is not real, right? So it's art is the thing that's not real. And like, in some ways, it's just the latest chapter in a long history of human beings trying to create things that are, are different from the way the natural world looks. We're just using these elaborate, complex technologies, which are, that's the world we live in, mm -hmm. in order to get some of those things to happen, you know? Yeah. Do you believe art isn't real? 
So, uh, boy, that's a really, that's like a kind of philosophical question. Is art real or is not? So, the thing of art, the material of art is the real part. The illusion of the work of art is an illusion. Wow, this is getting really theoretical yeah. here. Yeah. I, I, your <laughs> listeners are going to be like, oh, they lost me, right? Because like, that's like a philosophical problem. It's like, yeah. do you believe the illusion of the work of art or do you appreciate it as an illusion? I don't know. We can leave it there. Yeah. I have a question about art in respect to the amount of artists out there. Because I know like within European art, there was a point in which guilds took place. Yeah. And then the amount of artists grew and became more of a career choice instead of a, oh, I'm an artist and I have a passion for art. Yeah. I suppose this is a direction I could take. And I think now we see that all over the place because you could be doing art for a marketing firm or you could be doing art for something that isn't intrinsically tied to art itself. Yeah. Could you just talk about, I guess, that dynamic? Like the sort of professional versus non-professional? Yeah, or whether that even exists? Oh, it totally exists. Uh, you know, so so when we talk about the history of art, we almost always are talking about a professional class of artists who are people who have made some sort of life commitment to making art and they sort of wear the hat of artist and want to be an artist. And that's really only a small section of the people who are actually making art. There are many, many more people making art. So it can be people like you described who are sort of professional. So we even have language that kind of separates them from artists. We can call them illustrators. We can call them graphic designers. We can call them other sorts of things. And then there's this huge category of people who are making art um, as amateurs. And traditionally, art history hasn't really talked much about those people because they're not really the main, you know, ma- main protagonists of our narrative. But there are lots of people engaging with art that way, you know, and yeah. making things. And, and every so often, you'll find an artist who you think, I don't know why we're not talking about this person because the art's really great and really interesting. And it's because they, you know, somehow they weren't really professional artists and didn't mm-hmm. sort of create that persona around themselves. So art is much bigger, in other words, than just the famous, you know, Rembrandt, you know, Rembrandt, Van Gogh, the usual characters. Yeah. And then if you had to extrapolate 100 years from now, you're an art historian. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> looking back at our current time, how are you going to be interpreting who is that professional artist? Is it you have to go back and find their social media and see how many followers they had? Is it? So, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's going to be part of it. What I would like would be 100 years from now for people to look back at this area and th- this era that we live in and think of art not just as museum stuff, but as all the ways that we create visual representations of imaginary worlds, which could be anything from, you know, the gamer community to movies to to all of it. So art like in that big A, capital A sense of art, that all of that stuff is somehow about creating these sort of images that are meaningful to us. And that, you know, sometimes I I think of movies and TV and stuff like that. I think that's really our art today. That's Mm -hmm. like, that's where we're putting so much of our emphasis on creating these imaginary worlds. And I would hope a hundred years from now, we would maybe be more willing to see those, those as part of art history. 
Would you ever view social media as that imaginary world from the standpoint we are augmenting reality in it? So, yeah, I mean, I think there are people who understand this a lot better than I do. But yeah, what you post on social media is often not real in quite the same. I mean, we could get really academic with you. It's it's often curated, right? Mm -hmm. Like people curate their feeds, right, of social media. And also part of the appeal of a lot of social media seems to be that it seems real, but of course it's not really real. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, and that goes right back. That's art history, right? Like that's the, that's exactly what people were sort of trying to play with um, when they were making paintings hundreds of years ago is like, they want it to have that feeling of being real, but they also want you to recognize its artificiality at the same time. So yeah, maybe in the future there will be like a department of social media, you know, social media archaeology, where the job will be to go through all of this social media content that we are generating right now and see if we can like excavate what the world meant. That's fascinating. In 2020 or whatever. And then I think social media does a really good job right now at kind of inviting the viewer into that illusion. Yeah. Do you think that is inhibiting people nowadays from looking at older works of art and fully being able to immerse themselves? It's such an interesting question because you expect the answer to that to be yes, right? Like, well, why would you go and, you know, visit the Louvre, which is a long way from here and costs money and is inconvenient and all of that when you have social media and you have the internet and you have all of these things that you can use and you go to any major museum in the world uh, and it is just stuffed full of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, just overwhelmingly stuffed full of people. And the Louvre, I mean, I forget what the numbers are. Tens of millions of people visit that museum every year. And they all go and they all see the Mona Lisa and they do, you know, so. And, and so you think, well, so social media and um, digital imagery and the internet is actually not, it's not, it's it's not preventing people from having encounters with these works of art. In fact, it's probably creating some sort of desire in people to then say that they've gone and seen the original. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just mentioned I was in Chicago uh, at the Art Institute of Chicago, and on the day I was there, which was a Thursday, it was packed, just completely packed, mm-hmm. full of people. Thousands of people were there. So, and how do you think people should like building off of that? How should people go about consuming art, given the fact that they could? look it up online should they make an effort to go to a local museum are there other ways that they should be going about taking taking in these pieces yeah so i here's what i would tell someone to do you know of course you can go online and look at whatever you want but like you know here in california there are great museums so like you know pick your local museum right so here would be minetti shrem on campus or a little farther away in sacramento we have the crocker and they're both fine fine museums and just go. And I wouldn't do any research at all. I would just go, right? Mm-hmm. Go, look at some things. Don't try to look at everything because usually museums have more on display than any one human being can take in, art historians included. We can't <laughs> take in everything in the museum. And, and you know, maybe get the little guide and look and say, you know, I think I'm going to go look at this stuff today. And then just go and let your feelings and your responses be as natural as they are. So that may mean that you're looking at something and saying, God, I really hate this. I don't know why anyone would do this, right? That's really bad. 
but just let let that feeling be there. And then, of course, something you will not hate, right? There'll be something there that you maybe are like, you know, that's actually pretty cool. Or that maybe shows you someone's view of the world that you hadn't considered before, mm-hmm. something like that. And just let that be the kind of natural growth of things, you know? And um, in other words, find out, find your own path through it. Mm-hmm. I always find these sort of, you know, popular culture, like guides to (laughs) the history of art and all that to be actually really intimidating and sort of silly, because I think most people want to discover it on their own terms. Yeah. Yeah. And then you say intimidating and silly. (laughs) Do you ever think that some people are posturing when they are interpreting art or that art is kind of falsely taking on this elitist (laughs) mentality? Yeah. I do. <laughs> yeah, I totally do. And and you may have gotten the impression from from just talking to me right now that I work extraordinarily hard to not give that impression, mm-hmm. right? Because I find it really off-putting. Yeah. You know, when you have like the kind of art expert standing there, well, <laughs> this is, you know, and then sort of telling you all these things that they sort of know you don't know, but making you feel like there's something wrong with you because you don't know these things. So, I work really, really hard not to model that in my teaching and in my engagement with colleagues. And I I would just say to anybody, you know, you have every right to go to the museum and experience that any way you want. And there is no, you know, no art authority out there who can invalidate your feelings about what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And so don't let those people have that power over you because they don't really have it. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. the same thing as someone like, I don't like your shirt. Cool. Still wear it. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, that yeah. simple. It's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, is famous artist, but you look at their work, their painting and you're like, I don't really like that. That's fine. Yeah. Right. There's some famous artists whose work I don't like. Yeah. I will I th- not name them, but yeah. I will. <laughs> I think asking you why you don't like it too, or like kind of the opposite of meditating, like letting those thoughts come in, but not just letting them pass, but like maybe ask every so often, why did I not like that? Why did I not like that? Right. Is it because it wasn't pretty to look at? Is it because the artist wasn't saying something here that I kind of could understand? Did it disturb me? Maybe that's why you don't like it because the artist is showing you something that you don't necessarily want to admit or acknowledge. Or were you just not in the mood? I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's the other thing, you know? I mean, some days you will go and sort of, I, I've taught works of art where on one day, it's like, wow, I really see how exciting this is. And then, you know, teach that same work of art a couple of weeks later and I'll be like, oh my God, I have to do this again. You know, it, it's <laughs> just because you're in a slightly different place yeah. mentally and, you know, that, that affects it as well. And then do you ever think some art pieces are touted as being so moving and powerful and then you look at like what's backing that up yeah i mean you know these some of these like really famous paintings have an enormous history associated with them and they become these kind of you know they become something outside of of reality really mm-hmm. i mean they become these you know incredible things and that doesn't mean they're necessarily good works of art right or even being particularly fun to look at or Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, I mean, that doesn't mean that anyone really maybe even likes them that much. They just have that incredible power because they have so much, you know, cultural cachet associated with them. 
right? Yeah. And then you'll go to the museum, and there'll be something you, you know, by an artist you've never heard of, and you'll stand in front and go, that's really cool, actually. Yeah. And why haven't I heard of this, right? Like, I don't know. That person wasn't on the right side of history. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any favorite artist or art pieces, both in the past and any currently alive? Yeah. So you asked this question uh, uh, before and I was sort of thinking, oh God, how am I going to answer that? Because there's so many different works of art. So I work in the 18th century and I love many different 18th century artists. I could name, you know, 10 maybe for you that I really like. But an artist who's always been very dear to me, who is not an 18th century artist, is Henri Matisse, who's a, a 20th century French artist. And I just love his work in mm -hmm. a kind of instinctive way. I think it's incredibly pretty and I think it's incredibly visually inviting and arresting and he's a very clever artist and he creates things that I want to look at, right? So it's funny because he's not actually in my research area, but he's an artist I've always really, really enjoyed looking at and thinking about. He does more impressionism, right? Yeah, he's sort of a little after the impressionists. He sort of is, you know, he sort of um, straddles a number of different movements in early 20th century, but he's kind of growing out of what the impressionists yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. And his work is always really arresting to me. He's a good painter. And then later in his life, he did these cutouts with this huge pair of scissors. So they're like kind of hard to use. Mm -hmm. And he would do these paper cutouts and kind of glue these cutouts together. Those are some of the most interesting things you could ever see. They're really, really beautiful. Definitely. So he's a favorite of mine. Do you think he, you're more open to that work because you don't research at that area? Probably. Yeah. 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 That's probably true. So I can, it's interesting because that means that I can look at his work with the kind of open eye that, you know, a member of the public can go to the museum and just enjoy it. Whereas in 18th century, I'm sort of looking more like maybe kind of analytically, mm -hmm. right? And so that part of the brain is what's getting turned on. I love 18th century artists too. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I absolutely love them. Jean-Étienne Lyotard is one that I absolutely love. I love Boucher. He's a Francois Boucher, big French painter of that period. Beautiful painter. Um, I love uh, Giambattista Tiepolo. Mm -hmm. Chicago has a number of paintings by that artist and they're, he's beautiful, just gorgeous, beautiful artist. Um, yeah. So there are, there are others too. Yeah. And are there any artists today that are currently alive that you follow or not so much? So, you know, it's, it's like, I am, I'm not the best spokesperson for contemporary art. I got to tell you, and it's not because I don't like it, but because I, it's the contemporary art world is a very big, complicated place. And I, it, it's, it's, it really requires full-time <laughs> engagement in order to, to sort of make the most of it. I mean, there are contemporary artists I like, but not, I can't say that there's a single artist sure. that I particularly am kind of devoted to. I can't say that. Yeah. My failing probably. I can't <laughs> do that. Yeah. Do you have any parting words of wisdom, advice for students, listeners, colleagues, whatever you want to say? Yeah. I mean, I, so it's what we just touched on a couple of minutes ago, which is uh, my real mission is to, here at UC Davis particularly, is to just make students realize that this world is available to them, mm -hmm. right? It's available to them. And while there may be hindrances and obstacles to feeling comfortable in it, and there may be people who 
want to make it seem more exclusive than it really is. In reality, you have, if you want, every right to go and appreciate works of art on your own terms. And if I can get one student in a class to feel that the history of art is something they can start to look into, if I can achieve that with one student in every class, I feel like I've justified my existence. Right. So that's, that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. For oh, my Leona. pleasure. I really enjoyed it. You got me all talking, you know. <laughs> That's the goal. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time. <laughs>